Hello, everyone, and welcome to the DRW show. I'm going to coin that term officially. I'm Deanna Williams, and I am the personal brand of Deanna Reese Williams. And today we have Sarah. And ironically, we did not meet through the Summer Institute. I know that's pretty shocking because everyone so far we have met through Summer Institute, I believe. But Sarah and I actually met this summer through the Green Schoolyards movement. And we'll talk a little bit more about that as this interview goes on. But her and I met through a Zoom call, okay? And so there's some different connecting pieces um, and how I feel like we're even more connected and not just through environmental ed or green schoolyards, but just different parts of our, um, our lives kind of intersect. So Sarah, welcome to the DRW show. Thank you. Thank you. It's so great to be here. So could you tell us a little bit about yourself? How did you get into environmental ed? Yeah, so um, I was really lucky enough to grow up camping with my family. Uh, my, uh, I grew up in San Francisco and my mom's family was in Denver. So every summer we would do these long road trips uh, across the American West. And I, I don't know, there's just, there's uh, just when, when you have those early experiences, the, the American West especially just sort of finds a way to embed itself in your heart. And, uh, you know, so I, you know, continued doing that with my family and later on through school and college programs. And then um, as a mother myself, uh, have continued the tradition of long road trips uh, with my kids. We visited, I think, over 30 national parks at this wow. point. Yeah. Wow. That's <laughs> impressive. That's really impressive. I, so now I have to ask, which one is your favorite? What's like your top three favorite national parks? Yep. Uh-oh. Are you frozen? Are you still there? I am. I'm sorry about that. It's okay. What happened. <laughs> Okay, you there? Yes. Okay, great. Yeah, so 30 national parks at least. Uh, oh. So out of 30, what would be your top three, like either favorite or people have to go see? Like if you could give a recommendation. Oh, wow, that's a, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think that what's really amazing about the national park system is that each of them are so distinct and they have such a unique uh, uh, geological history, such a unique um, uh, sort of botanical experience, um, you know, the plants and animals, the ecology is so distinct. Like each national park really becomes sort of like the most sort of fulfilled or extreme version of the local surrounding ecological situation. So. You know, the Grand Canyon, for instance, you know, there are lots of canyons uh, in the desert, but the Grand Canyon kind of takes it to a whole nother level uh, right. in terms of its uh, immensity. Um, and so, you know, what I would say, like narrowing it down to three, that's a little bit challenging because each park kind of feeds a different part 
of your soul. Uh, so, um, you know, and, and, and meets different people in different ways too. So, you know, I, uh, top three national parks, um, oh, they, they're just, there's so many stories. It's hard to not like, go into or what about, <laughs> what about no, like, which ones, which ones fed you the most? Yeah. That might be um, a way of asking. Yeah, that's, a, I mean, that's a great question. I think that, I mean, so there's, there's the ones that are just sort of local in my backyard being from San Francisco. So there's just something about the High Sierra that Yosemite and Kings Canyon and, and Sequoia National Park all, uh, you know, all hold when you get up at to, you know, to 10,000 feet and you're, you know, and the tree line is just kind of right there and you have these huge granite domes and peaks and, you know, with all the glacial changes that have happened to them and the air is crisp in a certain way and it just, you know, it, it, there's just that feeling, um, you know, uh, of, of being up there. Um, for me, one of my personal favorites is the Mojave National Preserve. I just love the Mojave Desert and you know, the, the plants that are there, especially the, the creosote bushes and the, and the uh, Joshua trees and the barrel cactuses and the, you know, it just, the, the night sky and just the smell of the crispness. Even when it's hot, there's like a sharpness in the air that just makes my whole body feel good. Right. Um, um, uh, so we're still in California because there's a lot actually in California. And then, you know, you go to the other extreme to Redwoods National Park, which is in the northern part of California. And, you know, you have just these amazing trees and it's this interesting um, sort of state park, national park uh, intersection. So a lot of the campgrounds are on the state parks and the national parks are, I think, a, a few different groupings of, of land and it's just you know here you have these tall trees and the, the moistness from the fog and the denseness of the under foliage and it's green and red and rich and sort of that hummusy earth quality that you really only get in redwood forests and uh, nice. you know to just paint a local picture for being from San Francisco. <laughs> wow that was like the one national park that my husband and I went to when we went to San Francisco. Redwoods? Um, the Redwoods. And that wasn't long enough because of course we did the standard like day tourist type of trip because we only had one day to really explore but we've always said like if we have the opportunity to go back like we could I could totally hang out in that forest for a few days if you let yep. me you know. Yep. Yep. Wow. Uh you know, I mean, I think though that one thing that like I do with my kids speaking of the day tours is, you know, and this is me as a, just a parent who is an outdoors enthusiast, but also, um, you know, both a history nut and really committed to teaching my children to, to not just see what are, you know, what oftentimes is a white supremacist colonizing culture presents to them. So when we go into the visitor centers, who is being left out of the story? Who's not being left out of the story? You know, like oftentimes the national parks are where 
you know, there, <laughs> there are these abundant, beautiful spaces which people, which indigenous folks were actually kicked out of in order to make it a parkland. And so to make, you know, so it, it's always a history lesson, like how are, how are people being included and how are people being just erased entirely? How much are folks a historical anomaly as opposed to, you know, people who are still presently in relationship? And I think that, you know, one of the best experiences I had that way was um, in South Dakota, we, um, we had camped the night before at Badlands National Park, which is just stunning, you know, and overlooks Pine Ridge Red Reservation. And, okay. you know, and then we went, and this was in the middle of Sturgis, the Sturgis motorcycle thing. So oh, just wow. crazy. Then we went, sort of went past Mount Rushmore because we were there, which was uh, sort of, uh, you know, horrifyingly racist, honestly, in the way that they were presenting a lot of our, you know, national diversity and the history of the area, of course, because, you know, the Black Hills are sacred land to the Lakota people. And then we ended up at Wind Cave National Park. And what I loved about Wind Cave National Park, aside from that after days of motorcycles, it was really quiet because it's kind of an out of the way park. Um, right. uh, it was, you know, and it was just these beautiful hills going into sort of grasslands and they're doing all this rehabilitation work around the grasses and the, the buffalo and it's really kind of exciting the, the, the biology that they're doing. But we got to the mouth of Wind Cave and right there was a big sign acknowledging the five Lakota tribes that, that still treat Wind Cave as a sacred spot. And there were also the the prayer bundles from a, a recent ceremony, and and so I, I just I love that, and I love I, I I hope that as we continue all these conversations as a country about diversity and inclusion, that more and more our national parks include those those pictures because it's not like those those moments because it's not about erasing humans from nature. It's really about making sure that we're honoring uh, you know our connection and community with the natural world in all of the the sort of good traditional ways that we have and yes. so I, I really appreciated that about Wind Cave. Wow so one of the many reasons why I definitely wanted to take a moment and say Sarah would you be willing to do a DRW interview and you saying yes it means a lot to me, but it's just this very conversation and what you're talking about with the national parks. It, there's so much that I've learned in just our conversations in the last, what, three months um, and making me go back and doing some more history lessons myself. Um, I'm really working on trying to do better, a better job of doing land acknowledgement, like where am I at? I've at least established and ironically um, at the college that I work at, we have to take um, like culture and history and language courses. So I at least knew that the Tanatham were on these actual lands that I live on. Um, and I thought that was really impressive to know that. So the fact that they're no longer in the Cochise County area, but they're in the Pima County and they were formerly known, I don't wanna say formally, but also known as the Papago people as well. 
But my point is, is that there are so many times when I show up into like an environmental education room and when people say we want to do land acknowledgements, like the level of like how uncomfortable people feel about that. And it's not so much like, it's more than just like not feeling comfortable, but not even knowing where to start. Yep. Um, or what is the purpose of doing it? And part of what this kind of, it really reminds me of um, when I think about like my dad and where he grew up in Columbia, South Carolina. And one of the things I'll never forget, like him owning a piece of property on the very street that he grew up on, it's important because the city really wants to take over that street, actually wants to take over the two very streets. But I, it made me think if people from the neighborhood don't buy up this property, then it's almost as if they never lived there. You know what I'm saying? And so that was my way of like really connecting that and really understanding the significance of it. Like, it just, it's like, wow, it is really important to have that. Um, and especially as a black woman who lives in Southern Arizona, I, I'm not from Southern Arizona, but I'm a military kid that was born in Vegas. There's not really, like there's, so my connection is really whatever connection my parents have. And that's how I stay connected to where I'm from. And then I take it even further and it's like, I'm Puerto Rican, I'm Jamaican, like this is who I am. But I also think working at a tribal college where it is ingrained within the culture to hold on to who you are, but most importantly, know who you are. And I'm just, I don't know. So what, by the time you and I crossed paths, it was, I don't know, timing was everything because it it's perfect. made me like really try to take the time to get those stories, whether it's from mm. my aunts or my uncles or my parents. Um, and it's in whatever, if it's a phone conversation or an email or a text message, it's one of those things where I'm like, it is so important to capture that history. Because if you don't document it, then it's like it never happened, you know? And I'm thankful that I had a dad that took pictures of everything. <laughs> if I wanna know what happened 20 years ago, I guarantee there's a picture. So before there were like phones, I, maybe I should say 30 years ago, um, before there were phones, like he always documented everything. And so, um, I just find it really powerful. Like when you, when you, I felt like just helping me understand the importance of acknowledgement and mm. why it is such a big deal, but how do we change that narrative when people feel so uncomfortable? Cause we've seen this happen in the work that we're doing with the yep. green schoolyards. Yeah. I mean, so I am, I, and I want to acknowledge just right now that I am born and raised and continue to live on the traditional land of the Ohlone um, in, in what we call San Francisco, uh, which has its own, uh, you know, steep, steep history of, of genocide, erasure, resettlement challenges, not just for uh, indigenous folks through starting with the mission systems and then, you know, heading towards, you know, uh, vigilante militias once it be California became the United States and then 
all the history of of non-recognition, especially here in, on the coastal areas, there was a, a lot of non-recognition that happened for the local tribes. So meant they didn't get the resources and support as minimal as that sometimes can be as, as other tribes uh, around the country. Um, you know, but also just while I'm sitting here, I want to acknowledge the, um, you know, the, that uh, San Francisco is also where there's been a lot of, um, challenges around uh around the you know the, the challenges is such a euphemism for you know just really the treatment of the chinese uh the chinese immigrants and chinese americans for 150 years from being barred to being you know not full citizens to being in semi-slavery because just because you don't call it slavery and you don't enshrine it in law which is of course its own uh, <laughs> horrible experience in, in, in California, which was never a slave state uh, when the railroads were going up. And, you know, there was definitely a de facto, uh, you know, a lot of de facto um, a, a, uh, slavery, et cetera, of especially Chinese Americans. And then the Chinese Exclusion Act and just tremendous amounts of racism, you know, and then also in the West, the, the internment during um, during World War II of the Japanese Americans um, that that we can feel in the land that disrupted land ownership here. Um, and, you know, one of the national monuments that we've been to is Manzanar, which is one of the internment camps um, in uh, uh, what's called uh, Owens Valley. Um, so, you know, and then, of course, our very long, long history with um, with uh, the Latinx community here in California from, you know, early on, you know, in California sort of history to, you know, today, how, how that whole community and the variety, the diversity of that community is treated, um, you know, and in some cases, very, very, very poorly. Mm -hmm. um, uh, so just to acknowledge all of that. And I think that you know, part of this acknowledgement is that the land feels that, you mm -hmm. know, the land feels that the, 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 um, the, you know, even the way the, like, it makes me think about the, the going into the sequoia forest on, in, um, in the mountains, and there's a history of burning there that happens. And you can see it when you walk through, when you hike through the big sequoia groves, you can see the fires that are a thousand years ago and the fires that are 500 years ago because of the marks that they left on the trees. Walking through the trees, you're really walking through 2000 years of history of forest management. And, you know, and in this, in, in this state, the, you know, many of the native folks who had been participating and managing, partici participating in and managing the land through controlled burns, and all of these other things that we now know are important were, you know, there was there was genocide, resettlement, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And then Smokey the Bear came along and suppressed all the fires. And you can see that on the landscape too. Oh. Because there's 70 years where the, you know, 100 years where the sequoia didn't, weren't able to um, germinate because right. sequoia actually requires fire to germinate. So, so just all of these things that you see on the landscape. So it's, so when you, you know, I think the first thing to start with land acknowledgement is it's not some, some story that 
that we get to say whether or not it's present. It's really, are we, are we willing to look in the face of the story that's in front of us? Yes. You know, if that makes sense. And I think, so you talk about discomfort and I mean, that's like kind of the American story, right? Like, you know, you look, you know, we're talking about originalism in the constitution. Well, originalism has, you know, not to put it bluntly, you've been three fifths of a person. Right. You know, like, so like, do I like pretend that that's not there because, oh, it makes me uncomfortable to be that straight about that that's like what's originally in the constitution. Like, no, right. if we're just pretending, then we're pretending and you can't go deep and you can't have authentic conversation. And you certainly can't have the healing that we all need to move past that sort of original sin of what our country is founded on. Right. You know, so it's the same thing. Like it's there in the landscape. There's, you know, it's, it's, it's literally there in the landscape and, yeah. you know, and, uh, you know, so to, to not sure we can cover our eyes and sure it hurts mm -hmm. when we uncover them because it's painful. It's ugly. It's horrible. I, I, uh, you know, I don't know. I, that's never been a reason to like cover my eyes back up again. Like there, I guess another way to put it is that like there are people who don't have the privilege to cover that, their eyes back up. So why should my discomfort, which is so minor compared to, you know, any of the events that I've just described, why should my discomfort allow me to disqualify myself from that conversation? Right. This, you know, the, I, I wanted to reach out to you. Look, I'm getting, I'm like, wait a minute. We just had a holiday, a federal holiday this past Monday, right? Yep. And, um, you know, you're fully aware that I'm at a tribal college. We don't even, there's no acknowledgement that this day even exists on the calendar. Mm -hmm. at the college, which is totally fine. Um, but because we have offered free tuition to all Native American students or to all Native Americans, um, I had some very interesting questions come through last I Monday. I can imagine, yeah. It was like, do we still have class today? So I was kind of caught in a really weird space because I'm going, well, the college does not, like, it's not even acknowledged as a holiday. There's nothing, it's just another, another regular day. But what do you do when you've got students in the state of Arizona, where at times I feel like we can be very far behind on the times, whether we want to acknowledge what's happening or not. Um, and then I have students that live in the Northwest or on the East Coast, and they're like, it's indigenous people's holiday. Like it's indigenous people day. Like that's, and so as an instructor or whatever label they're labeling me for the week, I was like, listen, if you're taking, like, if this is a holiday for you and you're not, you had no intentions on coming to class today, that's completely fine. Mm -hmm. um, however, class will still be open um because it's not a recognized holiday anyway and not so much the indigenous people holiday but like columbus day is not even on our calendar is what i'm saying yep. um in our public schools that's what it's labeled as but i even had to explain to students like the purpose of indigenous 
like people's day in the first place. And I was kind of thrown for a loop because I'm at a tribal college and I'm having to explain to students why this is because they're witnessing in their own communities people protesting about this and they about, didn't about indigenous people's day yes uh-huh and they didn't quite understand it and i and it was really interesting because again there's things that i realized and that i as someone that lives in arizona um we can be very progressive in some aspects and then be so far behind like because we're not acknowledging that these that indigenous people day like it like there's no acknowledgement really you know what i mean like we see it on social media but it's not really it's not on the media you know it's not educating people it's not anything i think indigenous people's day is a complicated one because it is you know it it doesn't come out of any uh actual indigenous practice right, right? like and and it, there's a place where it's like saying okay we're finally understanding that columbus is bad columbus is a statue that should be torn down columbus sort of you know began this cycle of you know, 500 years of genocide and enslavement for much of the world's population right you know like, right. like why do we have a federal holiday for for um for columbus which it's still you know i don't know that anywhere is it like maybe in california i, I don't know the details it, it is even officially indigenous people's day so that is like actually like a whole way of trying to take back and reclaim power and you know and so i'm like completely 100 percent behind any way that that we can reclaim power and you know and rename and you know i i think that that like the next step in that conversation would be like what day is is meaningful to you in your own spiritual or religious tradition whether it's from an indigenous perspective or you know some other you know we we do such a bad job in this country of of having multiple types of calendars and you know we talked about this last week which is like how do we integrate a lunar calendar how do we integrate a calendar that begins in the morning or begins at sundown how do we integrate you know different types of religious rituals with our sort of 10 days of federal holidays right because you know, yes. even though one of those federal holidays is christmas so there's like already a you know a a diversity issue and i come across this myself as a jewish woman because you know i i have gotten into um i've had to say pointed things to employers in the past about about uh taking off yom kippur you know even when they're they're joking you know all those ways that jokes happen you know and you're right. like like one uh one time there was a boss who who asked me well, what if I told you you couldn't take it off? And I was like, I'd quit. You know, like, right. you right. really gonna like push me there, like around like right. religious freedom? You know? Right, exactly. <laughs> and for your viewers who don't know, Yom Kippur is, it's like the most holy day in the Jewish year. And like you fast all day and you pray in your synagogue or this year on your Zoom all year, um, all day. And, uh, you know, it's like kind of, you know, uh, yeah, I, I mean, like you just, it's not a day that you like go into work, but like we just, in general, as a, as a, an American culture, we don't know how to make space 
for that. And I think that this, this gets for me into some of the, the questions I have about diversity is if I feel like I'm put up sort of in a, in a corner by, you know, a, a coworker that says something like that, right? What, who else can I look to protect or to ask, right? So mm -hmm. like, you know, what accommodations are appropriate? So like making sure, you know, uh, making sure to advocate for like, if I'm in a school situation to advocate for kids who are fasting during Ramadan. And, you know, cause sometimes that's during the summer but sometimes that's during final exams and what kinds of accommodations can we come up with ahead of time so that it's not on the students or not, you know, to, to be saying, I need these accommodations, but to say kind of, we have accommodations available if you want to talk to us about it kind of thing. And, and so to just use, you know, any of places where I've felt discomfort or like I'm being othered, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So which we all have, we're all intersectional beings. So we all have those moments where we've been othered in one way or not. Some of us live always in that world and some of us mostly have the privilege to not feel that way but we've all had that experience and how am i how am i making it easier for people who are being othered to to step into power and so it sounds like what you did with indigenous people's day which is again this like funny thing that's in process of reclaiming power but at the same time is labeled columbus day right you know, you know on federal calendars right like right. so it's like this funny like taking power back but gut, gut punch at the same time yes <laughs> you know yes. like how are you making space for your students and it sounds like you're doing a great job of that you know and like just <laughs> making space and being proactive about your accommodations and you know. it was definitely unique um but it's one of those things as a faculty member that I'm finding whether they want to have these conversations, as long as we're in this digital space of being online, the more, as one of our um, Autumn professors would say, the more you let into the Autumn like bubble, the more influence, the more cultures, the more you have to be aware of these things. Like we, yep. you know, I mean, yeah, um, and the college does, I feel like an amazing job in making sure that we um, were not just acknowledging, but actually our calendar is adapted to autumn holidays. And so like our fall break is very early compared to most in the state of Arizona. It's usually the last week of um, September because there's a huge pilgrimage that the autumn people mm. do. And mm -hmm. so, and there's another holiday that Friday before that they also celebrate. And I can't remember it off the top of my head. Um, so I feel like they do a great job in doing that, but there's still other layers to that as we're like navigating through attendance policies because we're fighting this like, you know, there's policies and what yep. we have to do because of higher learning commission, but then how do we make sure like the culture, you know, is still there too. And it's really, it's, it's hard. You know, yeah. it is really, really difficult. And then the fact that we have, I believe we're at 54 different tribes wow. in attendance at wow. this college, which is unbelievable, unbelievable. Wow. Wow. And so we've got people from all over, all over the United States. And 
and it's hard because it's like I don't know every single culture it, it's just not possible for me to know that but just trying to remind myself like this is the culture in which I'm in um and there have been very sticky moments which we had talked about the last time you and I had talked um and it's been very interesting, which I have a whole nother question. So a whole nother question. It's like- Go into the question though. I just want to say that that's like, uh, you know, I think that what you've described that the college is doing is so important, which is how do you choose which to center? And it is an awesome college, right? So it's not a, a pan-native college. It's not a regular community college, right. you know, in San Francisco, right? Like. So the fact that it's continuing to center autumn culture, autumn holidays, autumn timing, like that's actually like an incredible invitation in to, yes. to being in culture. And, um, you know, and that's, that's uh, you know, I think where we in the end get strength. And if you're a visitor in, you can appreciate being in and then choose whether or not that's like something you wanna continue being in relationship with. But, exactly. But to keep centering it is is uh, I think that's just great that they're doing that. Yes, yes. So one of the last conversations that you and I had, we were talking about um, how can I describe this? I'll just put it this way. Yeah. So one of the conversations that came up in class in child development, we were talking about theories and the discussion at the very end, there was a student that's like, I don't think we should be talking about um, these white males that came up with these theories. I think um, you're choosing to stay ignorant. And that statement was directed towards me and I was totally fine with it. Um, and I thought it was really interesting and I'm still, not so much frustrated in the conversation. Conversation didn't bother me at all. Um, but what I said back to the student was, if we don't talk about these theories, because it was more than just like, okay, fine. I won't talk about these theories in class. But what happens to all of my students that still work in Head Starts, that are federally funded, that are members of the NACI organization, um, and the state affiliate organizations or still have to follow the expectations of whatever quality rating system is in their state, whatever early childhood competencies they have to follow. Yeah. I mean, and so there, suddenly I was having to explain not just to the student, but to the class is the systematic stuff. So I can stop That's talking about it. I'm like, sure. I don't want to talk about Freud anyway. You know, like, I don't want to talk about this stuff. But I'm like, so let's just say I stopped talking about it. But it's still in the system. Like, that's the struggle. And so I was explaining, you know, mm. we don't, I don't necessarily have to like every part of the system, you know, but the reality is of what I'm learning at this point of my career, part of changing that system, and we and we talk about it, is getting to the table. Like, 
I can protest and be frustrated and I believe in protesting, but who's getting to the table? Because yep. if nobody ever gets yep. to the table, yep. then the system never really changes. Yep. So it's like all of us ECE professors could totally go rogue, not teach these theories, but yet who's at the board of directors table for NACI, for yep. the quality rating systems, for the competency systems, for all of these systems in which these theories are, in, are based off of, these systems are based off of these foundational theories. Yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like that's, I it's just like, so part I of do. what, um, I think what's interesting, especially with this generation coming up, I'm super proud of them for protesting, but how do we get them to realize that the protesting is great? keep doing that but you got to get to the table how do we help people understand that they got to get to the table i you know i think that the, the, that's a great question i think one of the first things that comes up is is how you know how is our society preferencing who gets to the table so you've named some of that like you know the certifications the degrees if you don't know who freud is for like you know sort of psychological development theory you're not going to get to the table right right um, so i think that like being savvy about what are the roadblocks and then as as people who are you know showing up making sure that we're supporting getting those roadblocks out of the way so so making sure that you know they know about freud but also you know just even all the work that's happened in the last generation around learning differences like maybe if they're going to talk about Freud, they can like also do an oral presentation as opposed to just a written report and start to like push those uh, narrow boundaries that have preferenced, you know, uh, wealthy white men for so many generations, right? Because there's so many ways that a sort of capacity can be measured and we, our culture only agrees on a very narrow section. So as you're grading even like, how much can you push around the edges so that they get the grade, they know about Freud, right? You know, yes. uh, so I think that that's one of the ways, I think that the, for me, and this is one of the things that's really shown up in environmentalism, in the environmental movement, in outdoor ed is, is like, what are the underlying cultural stories? What are the underlying paradigms that are shaping the world that I have access to. Mm -hmm. So uh, in the, you know, in the ways that we engage with the natural world, you know, so much of it in our dominant, you know, our, our Christo dominant culture has to do with a, a, uh, uh, a particular view of the Garden of Eden story, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Where, you know, there's like sort of no work that's being done on the land because it's just paradise. And then, you know, we are divorced from the paradise because we've fallen and it's the woman's fault. So then anything that's feminine also becomes problematic, right? You know, where, right. where there's like, you know, instead of, you know, and a, a traditional sort of forest land where like, actually there's like room under the trees because, you know, 
the the elders have been managing you know burns for thousands of years right like, right right so like so what are the stories so we have in in american culture we have this this sort of paradise lost story literally you know like and we have these you know a lot of um christian mystics who are the adventurers john muir being you know top among them who continue to tell our story of american wilderness through this unpeopled sort of connection to a particular type of god right and so even though i you know i'm not even christian even though i you know like even if I don't believe in any of the stories, even if I'm atheist, those stories about how we can see the Sierra are still defined really by John Muir's Christian mysticism from, you know, 150 years ago. So, right. so I think that one of the pieces is to understand, to really start getting at what are the root paradigms. You can't understand our connection to the natural world as a culture until you have looked at at uh, you know the story of the garden of eden whether it's from you know whether you're doing it from a religious perspective or you know cultural perspective we have to understand what stories are running our you know our ability to see so you know so for me that's helpful in the environmental space because if i know the stories that are running it then you know and if i find that the way that they're managing it actually erases people so you know right. to whatever degree that like the untrammeled wilderness erases i mean it's it's extremely problematic because it erases indigenous history because there's no part of north america that has ever been unpeopled right. Um, right so 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 i know that i have a problem with that world view but i'm not going to sit out and protest i actually know that i have to change the whole paradigm yes right i have to start yes. changing the whole story so yes. that's part of it for land acknowledgement to me back to the land acknowledgement question that's one of the many ways that i am sitting at the table changing the rules of the paradigm that's running running the meeting yes if that makes sense yes it makes perfect sense because like i said one just having that conversation in class um put a lot of things, even as I was saying it, put a lot of things in perspective, even for myself, because then it was like, wow, I have a clear, I felt like I was getting, becoming more and more clear about the systematic things yeah. and the amount of work it takes. And it was just like, okay, that really just happened in class. <laughs> like I'm professing to you and yet I'm professing to myself at the same time, realizing it is, it, it suddenly, where I am at the table became it, there was a value to it. Not that it yeah. didn't mean anything before, but it was more than just like, well, I'm, I'm, I'm on a board, you know, it was like, no, like I'm really on this board and what I share as a human is going to change a narrative someplace. Exactly. And that was really, really powerful for me to realize. In exactly. That you know, and then I just think about other, and it's not just environmental ed, but even in early childhood and even in doing these interviews or any other spaces that I'm on, it's like, wow, that's really powerful. You know, um, yeah. what is the narrative that's actually running the show? 
Exactly. Because uh, it's, it's never only the science. It's never only the studies. It's never only any, you know, any of these other things, the ecology, what have you. There's always a deeper narrative that is actually informing how we're doing it. And unfortunately, the narrative that is has been dominant is one that diminishes women, dim diminishes gender fluidity, diminishes anybody who is not at the one end of the spectrum of racial color, uh, diminishes any non-Christian and in some cases non-Protestant religious views. Um, you know, and so, and I'm, uh, now I'm, I'm, it just, any place where you're intersectional and, you know, uh, to your listeners, any apologies if I haven't mentioned a space that's, that's, uh, that shows up for you, these narratives all are about keeping that, you know, in the end, that white supremacist colonial patriarch patriarchal story in power, even if the people who are perpetuating the narrative don't have any intention around it. That's what's so powerful about these underlying narratives is that they they have us without knowing it. Right, know? right. They have us without knowing it. And oftentimes they don't give us any way out. So you take a lot of the climate crisis and the science is totally real. The science is totally real. But when I see friends talk about it in a way that's an Armageddon end of the world scenario, Right. In the Armageddon narrative, there's no there's no choice point for us. We right. have there's no action. If the end of, of the world is actually coming, there's no action that we can take in that narrative that brings change or freedom. So if we're going to only live in the climate crisis as an Armageddon neighborhood, an Armageddon na narrative, right. we have it's already over. So what is the narrative that we can put the climate crisis in? Right. That gives us, you know, a way out that, that allows for change. Yes. <laughs> I mean, I, all I can do is just snap, just snapping. <laughs> I, I'm so serious. I, I, I love it. And so, I think that, but that to say to your children that, or to your children, to your students, sorry, to say to your students, that's how you get power. When you are at a place where you can start to change the narrative that is underneath everything no yes. i don't want an armageddon neighborhood or I keep saying i don't want an armageddon narrative i want a narrative that has an option right no i don't want a narrative where children are sort of controlled automatons of their parents right i want a narrative where children are in freedom right <laughs> right know, like, I, <laughs> yes I originalist narrative of the constitution i want the narrative we're actually all, you know, we're all created free and equal. Like, yes. so what's the narrative that we're choosing here? Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. So, okay. I'm going to kind of shift. I know, I know, I know. We, y'all don't realize like Seraph and I can do this for hours. And when and we come out, of, when we come out of the Zoom bubble, our families are like, so what was going on? <laughs> Seraph and I, we started at a meeting and we just go, you know, we just get in, we, we go in. Uh -huh. So one of the 